Welcome to a new Neverland case file. Halloween may be over and we are about to enter Christmas, but someone is still hanging around after Halloween, waiting for us to tell his tale. Dean Coral is the Candyman, ready to give the world tasty treats and lure young boys and men into his terrifying boat shed. So get out those case files and let's jump on in. A quick warning before we start, this podcast is going to feature themes of violence, torture, and sexual assault against minors. Viewer discretion is advised and only intended for audiences 13 and up. Coral was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana on December 24, 1937. He is the first child to his parents who did a lot of bickering throughout his childhood. They eventually decided to divorce when he was seven years old. Coral was a shy boy from a broken home. He rarely socialized with other children but he still cared deeply for the people around him. In 1950, Dean Coral's parents tried to reunite their love and get remarried only to divorce for a second time three short years later. But it wasn't long until Coral's mom was finding love again, this time with a clock salesman. The new family found a home in Vendor, Texas, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, and opened a candy-making business. The clock salesman had to first discovered Dean Coral's mom whenever she was making candy and said that she should make a business out of it. They named the business Pecan Prince, and Coral and his brother was in charge of the machines and their stepfather was in charge of selling the candy. Coral did all of this through high school. Coral started to date girls occasionally to keep up the appearance of a normal teenage boy, but also discovered that he was gay. Now, like this most serial killers that we have talked about before, he did not live in a time period where that was accepted. So he hid that side of himself a lot. Following Coral's graduation in the summer of 1958, the family moved to Houston, where they sold most of their candy and opened a shop. Two years later, Coral moved in with his grandmother back in Indiana. She was widowed and needed help on her farm. Coral started talking to a local girl there, and at one point, the girl proposed to him and he turned her down and never spoke to her again. I think even the fear of being with a girl permanently scared Coral so much that he didn't even think about talking to her again. Even though everyone around them said they had a very cute relationship and that they someday would get married. Coral moved back home to Houston sometime later when his mother and stepfather started to face difficulties in their marriage. But Coral watched his mother get another divorce in 1963. After that, his mother opened her own candy store and Coral was vice president and turned the place into the perfect spot for kids to come around. 
Coral painted the outside to look like a playground, kind of the place that often would give candies people candy, and people came looking for it after school. In fact, the principal of the elementary school often hated Coral for giving out candy to the young kids because they had to cross a busy street in order to get to the candy store. Everyone in town loved Coral, though. They said he cared for children like no one else, and he always had a little one hugging on him. The picture-perfect Candyman, and many women who worked at the factory and store loved him. And though he was kind to them, he was more flirty to the male employees. Many people knew he was gay that worked with him, but none said anything against it, because he was so kind. For the teens in town, Coral had made a place for them as well in his factory. In the back of the store, Coral set up a pool table, jukebox for teens, and couches and TVs, and provided a safe place for them to hang out. In fact, one parent woke up one morning to find her son missing, only to find him sleeping on the couches at the candy factory. Coral insisted that it was perfectly fine and the boy was no trouble at all. The mom could never guess that in a few short years later, her son would die at the hands of the very same candy man who he was sleeping on the couches of before. In 1967, Coral met 12-year-old David Brooks. The two became close friends. David saw Coral as a kind-hearted father figure he didn't have at home. They went fishing, camping trips, and David spent a lot of time at Coral's place of work. But Coral had a much darker fantasy planned for David. Beginning in 1969, he paid David to perform oral sex on him. This was the next step to ensure that David will do anything that he asked. Pretty soon though, the candy company started to fail and Coral took up a second job with Houston Lighting and Power Company to make ends meet. He hated his new job, but when the candy business closed its doors for good, Coral had no choice but to stick with it. We are now moving on to Coral's first known victim, Jeffrey Korn, a student at the University of Texas in Austin. The young man was hitchhiking on September 25, 1970. Coral picked up Jeffrey and took him home where he raped, torment, and eventually murdered the young man and buried him in Long Island Beach. Shortly after the... Jeffrey's murder, David walked in on something disturbing. You remember me mentioning David before? David was the young man who saw Coral as a father figure. He saw him as someone that he could go and hang out with any time and didn't have to call or anything in between. So David walked into Coral's house and just walked in like any other day and saw him raping two boys and had them strapped to what Coral called his torture board. David left immediately, but told no one what happened. Coral promised David a car for his silence, and David was driving a new car by the end of the week. Oh, and those two boys were also murdered. Oh, and also those two boys 
happened to be boys that David knew and were friends. Coral decided that if he could get David to help him out, things would be much easier. Coral offered David $200 for every boy he would bring bring him. Now, David wanting to be the best kind of son for his dad-type figure, and he wanted to help his family. His family was going through some hardships at the time, so $200 for every boy would help his family out a lot. He decided to do it. On December 13, 1970, David brought two boys to Coral's apartment after a religious rally. Coral and Coral raped and killed them both. It continued this way for some time. David would bring the boys and Coral would rape and kill them and then bury them by or in his boat shed that he rented. Many lives were lost in this manner and in the winter of 1971, David lured Elmer Henley as his new victim to the monster of the candy. For some unknown reason, Coral seemed to really like Henley and spared him. Coral offered him the same thing that he offered David, $200 for every boy he brought him. He told Henley that he would that he was part of a slavery ring and wasn't actually killing these boys. Of course, me and you both know that's a lie. At first, Henley wanted nothing to do with any of it. He didn't want to be a part of this sick sex ring that Coral was a part of with his friend. But when his family soon entered dire hardships in early 1972, Henley accepted the offer and brought his first victim to Coral on March 24th of 1972. This continued on for some time, and after bringing Coral one of his friends, Henley begged Coral not to hurt him. Coral said that all of the boys he had ever gotten were only raped and killed and never sold to a sex ring and never to be seen again. Henley followed Coral's instructions and buried his friend at the boat shed too. David saw something change in Henley though. He said that Henley was starting to enjoy it and actually liked being part of the murders. There were so many moments when David thought that he was going to die next. Coral would grab him, strap him to the torture board, and rape him. And then when David was sure he was going to die, Coral would just let him go. It was like a threat. It didn't bring... It was definitely a threat. It was, if you don't bring me a newborn soon, you'll be next. I don't think Henley actually went through any of this torment like David did. And I think that's why David was so scared. And why Henley almost seemed to like it a little bit because it was like he was being able to bond with a father figure. The murder spree continued for a long time. When asked later why David stayed in it for so long, he said, quote, I was worried he would go after my brothers, that he said many times that he liked a little too much. On August 7, 1973, Henley invited Tommy Curley to a party at Coral's house. As they were headed there, they were joined by Rhonda Williams, a friend of Timothy. Timothy. 
Her father was a drunk and had beaten her earlier that night. She was outside waiting for him to cool down when the boys walked by. Henley took pity on her and invited her to come along, knowing this would probably upset Coral. He was right. Coral was furious about Henley bringing a girl to his house. And after Henley explained her situation, he calmed down a bit and offered everyone beer and pot. Coral waited for everyone to pass out so then he could fully take charge of his enragement. When Henley woke up, he was gagged and seeing Coral putting handcuffs on him, noticing Timothy and Rhonda in the same manner beside him. Coral, seeing him awake now, took the gag out and told Henley he was still very angry and was going to kill all three of them for bringing this girl to his house. Henley begged to be let go and promised that if he could help do the torture and murder for the other two. Coral saw Henley as a loyal follower for years now, so he let him go and told him to take the girl. As the pair was putting the two teens on the boards, Rhonda asked Henley if this was real, and he said it was. Then she asked him, are you going to do anything about this? This made Henley stop and question himself. He'd been following Coral's orders for so long that he didn't even stop to question them anymore. And now he was. Was he actually going to go through with this? He had certainly helped Coral murder several others before, but was this okay and was it right? He was now questioning himself back and forth, but he had to think of something soon if he still wanted to make it out alive. Henley thought quickly. He asked Coral if he could take the girl to another room, which he was ignored for. So in a moment of panic, he grabbed Coral's pistol and shouted that he, that they had gone too far. Coral started to taunt Henley, telling him to kill him and that he can't do it. Henley then fired at Coral's head, hitting him in the forehead, but the bully, bullet failed to penetrate his skull. Coral launched at Henley, and Henley fired two more times. Coral hit the wall, and as he tried to leave the room, Henley fired three more times, finally killing the Candyman. This was a crazy story of where the people that were going to be killed by a serial killer actually got to kill him first. But that wasn't the end of the night story. Henley freed the other two, and he just wanted to leave, but he was convinced by the other two to stay and call the police. Henley called the police and said, y'all, better get down here. I just killed a man. The police couldn't figure out why Henley had done it and how he known Coral was going to kill all of them. That's when Henley told police about him and David's involvement. He even showed them where the boat shed was and where every body was. Henley called his mom from a reporter's car phone at the boat shed, crying and told her everything too. Henley was indicated and found guilty of six murders, and David, who portrayed himself as a silent partner, was indicated for four murders and found guilty of one. 
both were sentenced to life in prison. Corals targeted males between ages of 13 and 20, all of whom were abducted by the help of David and Henley. Coral would strip the boys naked and then tie them to the plywood board. They were then raped and beaten and tortured through various means, some of which I'm not even comfortable reading. Sometimes he would keep his victims for several days or just a few hours. Coral would strangle or shoot them, then tied up the bodies with plastic sheets and buried them in mass graves. Sometimes he would make the victims write home, saying they found new jobs in Austin or were staying with friends somewhere else. The police said they were runaways and that they would come home eventually. Coral also kept all of their keys as trophies. There was a total of 29 victims, just by David and Henley's count. But the number could be much greater, and a total of 44 boys were marked as runaways in the area around the time of Coral's murder spree. He could have killed more without the other two knowing. I mean, that first victim, the two boys didn't even know. He was just a hitchhiker. There are still, to this day, a few bodies that were never identified. And the police are desperately trying to find their homes through records of DNA search, dental records, or anything else. We are truly hoping that these boys are someday found. What a huge case and so much to unpack and think about. I can't imagine what have gone through Henley and David's head through that whole time. They knew what was happening. It really shows how much fear can take hold of your mind and hang on to it. And where it clouds your judgment so much. Well, I think I'm done with candy for a while. And I'm definitely done listening to the Candyman song because it kind of makes me think differently about it now. That's it for this case file. Join me again next time for a brand new case. You can follow me on my social media apps, my Instagram at Neverland Serial Killer, or on my Snapchat at Neverland underscore Kate. Well, I hope you don't walk into a candy factory soon. Have a very killer day.